If you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. And we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1, all the way through verse 14. I'll read it and then ask the Lord to bless the preaching and teaching of his word. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word of instruction and your word of hope. We pray, Lord, that as you brought this vision to comfort and to strengthen Daniel and your people, we pray that you would strengthen us tonight, that you would give us hope that there is an ancient of days and he is on the throne. And Lord, we pray that we might fall before your throne, that we might acknowledge the son of man tonight and give him glory and serve him along with the thousands of thousands. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. What is Jesus's favorite title or name for himself? 
Might be a strange question tonight. Maybe Jesus really likes the title Son of God. Maybe he really likes the title Christ or Anointed One or maybe even the Lamb of God. Now, there's a sense in which I can't answer that question because I don't know which one is Jesus' favorite title for himself, but I do know which one he used most often to describe himself and his ministry. The title he used most often to describe himself is the Son of Man. He uses it all throughout the Gospels, and he especially uses it in places that are of great importance to his future ministry, his second coming, and his coming in glory. It's a title he uses of himself very often. I'll give you just one example in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being interviewed or rather interrogated by Caiaphas, the high priest, we get this exchange. It says, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. And so we see Jesus uses this to describe his future uh, second coming in glory. But it's not a term that Jesus has just made up. It's not something that he has uh, come up with on the spot and under pressure. No, he takes it from Daniel 7. He takes it from this text here. This is the primary illusion that he is making. The famous vision that Daniel receives of the Son of of man. I've got three things for us this morning, really three pictures uh, this evening for us to think through the vision that Daniel gives to us to help us understand it. Three dynamic pictures that we see in this vision. The first picture we see is of horrifying monsters, horrifying beasts. The second vision picture that we see is of the ancient of days sitting upon his throne. And the third picture that we see is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, given all authority on earth. We'll start with our first one, uh, the first picture of horrifying monsters. It might be worth mentioning a little bit of the context of the book of Daniel so we can recall what is going on. We should recall that Daniel is an Israelite. He's a faithful man. By now he's an old man and he's been living in exile uh, ever since he was a young boy. He's been living in Babylon as uh, a slave taken away from his family and from his homeland. And we see all throughout the story of Daniel that he's a faithful young man. He's God-honoring and he seeks the glory of God even in his pagan context. And all throughout his life, Daniel sort of rises up the ranks. He becomes useful. He becomes a wise counselor to various kings in Babylon and eventually in the Persian kingdom. He's seen as a prophet, as a seer, as a dream interpreter, someone brought in to give counsel. And by this point in his life, that's exactly what most people view him as. And in chapter 7, he receives the biggest and perhaps the most terrifying vision that he has ever received. And what does he see? I'll just briefly go through the beginning of this vision. Look at verse 2. It says, the four winds 
were stirring up the great sea. So there's these four winds of heaven. Those are providential winds. And you're meant to get the idea that something big is happening. This is not a small thing, but the winds of providence are now blowing. And what are they doing? Well, they're stirring up the sea. They're stirring up that place of, of evil and a place of chaos. That's what the sea represented. Even in this kind of vision, it represented a great evil, a great chasm of destruction and unknown. And you can imagine what good could ever come out of the sea? Uh, what could possibly be brought out of such a terrible place? You might imagine a witch, for example. And she's standing before her cauldron and pouring all sorts of strange ingredients and bubbling up her pot. And what will rise out in this strange spell she's performing? Well, what comes out? Four beasts rise up out of the sea. We see this in verse 3. Four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. And we need to see that each one of these is a monstrous sort of creation... An abomination. They're, they're strange and unnatural creatures. For example, the first one is a mixture of a lion and an eagle. And it has the mind of a man. The second one, we're told, is like a bear. It's not exactly a bear, but it's like a bear. But it's ten times more vicious. It's chomping on bones when we see it for the first time. And we're told in verse 5 uh, that it is given the, the command, arise... ...devour much flesh. So it's already eating... ...and it's given the task of consuming much more flesh. And then we see the third beast... ...and it's once again an unnatural beast. It's a leopard. It's a bird. And it's got four heads. And so it's swift... ...and you can't really run away from it. Can you run away from a creature with four heads? You can look every way. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to, to escape from a beast like this. And we're told in verse 6 that this third beast is given dominion. And then the fourth one is rather interesting. It's described not like an animal, as if there's nothing really to compare it to. We're told in verse 7 that it was different from all of the beasts that were before it. Again, in verse 7, we're told that, it, that it's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And from this Unique beasts come ten horns, and then one of those ten horns is especially strong and treacherous and boastful and violent, and it's uh, killing off the other horns we see. What are we getting from this picture? Well, these are vicious monsters. They're distorted, strange creatures. They're abominations, and they're unnatural. But also notice that they have power, and they have authority, and they have uh, commandments to rise and to, to stomp on the earth and to eat flesh and to consume. And we're meant to see them as the enemies of God. What is going on in this vision? It describes the powers of this world. That's what those beasts are. It's describing the powers of this world. Governments and nations and all human powers and even spiritual powers set against God in this world that we live in. They're the kingdoms of this age. In one sense, this vision is meant to describe for us all of history. It's a history of beasts. We see 
of course, all throughout history, various kinds of oppression under human dictators, of godless leaders. We see genocide by tyrants and evil men. We see the wicked prospering and we see the people of God suffering under the the heel of wicked tyrants. When we see a vision like this, we're meant to think of nations like Egypt, which enslaved the people of God and put them to harsh labor. We're meant to think of nations like Assyria, which exiled the ten tribes and sold them into slavery. We think of Babylon, where Daniel is living now, who came and besieged Jerusalem and killed off the people there and ransacked the temple of God. We might think of Rome, the great empire that crucified Christ and fed Christians to lions. And we could go on and on and on. This is a a general vision being described, telling us what the powers of this world are. Are like. I like the way that Dale Ralph Davis says, says it. He says, We're meant to see this vision and see that history is beastly. And what's accomplished by the first picture? Well, it makes us afraid. It makes us afraid because, in a sense, it presents the world accurately, honestly, as it truthfully is. And it reminds us that we're small and we are weak. And that very often we are surrounded by powerful enemies who are wicked. He's giving us a very realistic view of the world, is he not? He's telling us the truth. He's giving us a realistic picture that this is not an idyllic world. Though beautiful, though created by God, the good, it is filled with enemies of God. And there is evil here and there is opposition. It's a world of monsters. Now I want to see... The second thing, the second picture, is the Ancient of Days. He comes into the picture quickly. And notice the timing, that the way in which the Ancient of Days enters the scene. It's a a suspenseful moment, and we're thinking all about these horrible, rotten beasts. And you can't take your eyes off of them. And then suddenly, in verse 9, in a moment, we're looking at a totally new picture. We're seeing the Ancient of Days I think of it rather like a movie where there's tension building from scene to scene and it's becoming more and more tense until there is a a sudden conclusion right at the end. Look at verse 9. Suddenly, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. It's a calm scene. There's no chaos here. There's no more rampaging beasts. We actually see the Ancient of Days. He's sitting down. He's undisturbed, he's unmoved, he's unfazed. He is God, and these beasts are unfazing to him. And he's called the Ancient of Days. Now, there's a sense in our culture today where we don't really value language of of elders. right? We hear Ancient of Days and we think old and stodgy. But that's not at all what this would have meant in a Hebrew culture to be the ancient of days uh, pictured eternality and wisdom and someone that was regal and royal. We're seeing God who is from of old. He's from before the foundations of the earth. He was here long before man. He was here long before the beasts and the monsters ever got here. This is the Lord of creation. He's the one who laid the foundations of the earth. 
He's the one who determined its measurements. He's the one who shut up the sea with doors. He's the one who hung the clouds and the stars and the sun and the moon all in their place. And we're meant to instantly feel relief when we see him. Now, what is he like? We've given several descriptions of him. For example, look at verse 9. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And so here is purity and perfection in God. He's, he's so unlike the abominations from the sea. He's pure, he's holy, and he's good. And, and there's a sense in which he's wondrous to behold. He's radiant, and he's splendid, and he's shining, and he's full of marvelous light. And, and you love to look at him. You love to gaze upon him because there is beauty and majesty when we see the Ancient of Days. Then he goes on and gives another description in verse 9 through 10. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning bright, burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And what is that description suggesting for us? Well, it's suggesting that this ancient of days is furious with sin. That all of his rage is now built up against these monsters and against these beasts. These are consuming fires. They're terrifying. God is sitting here to judge, is he not? He sat down to do what? To call the court to session. Look at verse 10. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And so he's taking the beasts to task. He's establishing justice. He's putting an end to their wickedness. This isn't just a pure God. This is a holy God who will establish justice. Notice one more description about him in verse 10. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And so here is innumerable numbers. Ten thousand times 10,000, more than you could imagine, more than you can count. And what are they doing before him? Well, they're serving him, we're told. They're worshiping him. They're watching him reverently. They're standing in his presence in awe, proud to be there, honored to call him Lord. They fear him and they love him. This is a picture of worship, is what we're seeing here and this vision, describing to God worthiness, as seeing his glory and acknowledging his power and his holiness and his grace. We could ask ourselves tonight, do we worship God in this way? Do we simply stand in awe before God? Do you wonder about him? Are you stunned by him? Is he remarkable to you? Does he excite you? Does he interest you? Do you fear him? Do you love him? Do you desire to serve him and desire to honor him and desire to bow down before him? What we're seeing is a picture of true worship. And there's nothing in this world that is like it. There's nothing like it. And there's only one way we get there. We need to behold our God. And we see his character. And we consider his actions. And we experience his salvation. Now, it's very clear when the ancient of days shows up, his people worship him. And what have 
they and, and us as well forgotten about, the beasts. They're already forgotten about by the time we're worshiping God. Look at verse 11 through 12. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. With their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. It's, it's almost as if Daniel has become so fixated upon uh, the ancient of days and upon God. And he's forgotten all about the beast until the beast begins to shout. And he's off in the corner shouting and blaspheming and doing anything he can to be heard. And he looks over and what happens instantly? God kills him. In a moment, all of, all of the threat is taken away. His end is swift and sure. In just a moment, he is burned and carried away. And then what happens to the other beasts? Well, they lose all of their power. They're prolonged for a time, but, but now they're just, they're just tame kittens at this point. They're nothing. Once again, feel the effect of the vision that Daniel is describing. What was once terrifying and overpowering and unstoppable is taken out in a moment. Why? Because the ancient of days has come. And he's the king who defeats all of his and our enemies. He's the ancient of days. We see a third picture. It's a picture of the son of man. Look with me at verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And so he's, he's watching this scene unfold. These beasts have just been taken out by the ancient of days. And then a very mysterious figure shows up in the eyes of Daniel. Now why is he mysterious? Why is he strange? Well, this figure is strange because he's described as both human and as divine at the same time. Notice he's described as human. He's one like a son of man. He comes in the image of man. He comes resembling man. That description in the Old Testament of a son of man was of a lowly position, of a creature. Look at Psalm 8, for example. What does David say? He says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. In other words, David's saying, I look at you, God, and I think, how in the world could you care about a son of man like me? That's who has arrived. He's a son of man. But at the same time, he's divine as well. He comes in the clouds, for example, like a theophany of old. It's God who always comes in the clouds and God Alone, for example, in Deuteronomy 33, 26, we're told this, There is none like you, O God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Or in Psalm 104, it says, Of God, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. And so here he comes in a way that only God could come. And he even appears before God. And then the topper of it all is he's given the authority that only God could ever have. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so this son of man comes, and he's to have an everlasting kingdom. He's to have the worship of all creation. He's to have glory over the entire earth. What are we seeing in this one mysterious figure? Humanity and divinity brought together in one. It's fascinating. It's an Old Testament prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is one person and two natures. Christ who is truly God and yet truly man. He has divinity and humanity joined together, uh, inseparable, unchangeable within him. Daniel's seeing something remarkable here in this vision. He's, he's seeing a glimpse behind the curtain. He's seeing God's eternal plan. He's seeing a glimpse into the covenant of redemption. He's seeing the Father promise to the Son glory. And he's seeing the Son promising to take on human flesh and then to submit to his Father. Why does Daniel get a vision like this? What's the point what does this do for Daniel? How can this help him? It comforts him. It's given for his comfort. Daniel's in exile. He's lost in the world. The people of God have been scattered away. And what are they to take away from a vision like this? Well, they're to see and know that a rescue operation is underway. That a redeemer is coming. He will rescue them. He will be Emmanuel, God with them. He will defeat the wicked beasts. And he will rule over the whole earth in perfect righteousness and perfect peace. That's not just comfort for Daniel. That's comfort for us too. You will be discouraged by the world. But when you're discouraged, remember these visions. Remember the ancient of days. He's sitting there. On his throne, he will open up his books. He will defeat his enemies. And he has all power and authority. And also remember the Son of Man, God in the flesh, who comes riding on the clouds, who comes to be our good and perfect king. Let's pray.